Hi friends. Today we're going to continue talking about some hard things. I understand that many of us are suffering from life fatigue. On top of the COVID pandemic, we've never had anything like the social unrest we're experiencing in our country right now. It's wearying, and I get that. I feel tired too. Nevertheless, turning our attention away from these challenges is not an option for the body of Christ. We are His hands and feet, His voice and ears in this broken world. He hasn't given this responsibility to anyone else. So as we look again at some difficult matters, I want to make two requests of you. First, remember the words of Paul in Galatians 6-9, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. And second, pray diligently for an attitude of humility as we wrestle with these challenges. I'm grieved at the arrogance and unteachable spirit I've witnessed in far too many fellow believers. If nothing else, let the fact that we've not solved these contentious issues in thousands of years help us understand that no one, apart from the Lord Jesus, has full and final wisdom on these matters. As the writer of Proverbs says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look into your word. We pray now that your Holy Spirit would come to be our teacher and to guide us into all truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'd like to begin with two stories. First, on November 1, 2017, the Houston Astros won the World Series of Major League Baseball, the first championship in their 55-year history. And the city of Houston went berserk as the windless drought finally came to an end, and some 750,000 Houstonians showed up for a victory parade. Now, even though I'm a native Atlantan and a diehard Braves fan, I couldn't help but get caught up in the spirit of it all, celebrating right along with all the Houstonians who had waited so long. In 2017, the population of Greater Houston was around 6.8 million, but only 46 of those were on the Astros roster wearing the uniform, playing the game. An even fewer number actually played during the World Series, and yet millions of Houstonians claimed victory. People who never took the first swing or fielded a ball were in the streets shouting at the top of their lungs, we won, we won. Of course, nobody faulted these folks or pointed out the technical inaccuracy of their celebration. Instead, there was just a shared sense of pride all throughout the city because we, had finally won the World Series. Second story. On April 4, 1945, the 4th Armored Division and the 89th Infantry of the 3rd U.S. Army liberated the Nazi labor camp near the town of Ordruf, Germany, one of the camps in the notorious Buchenwald network. When American soldiers entered the camp, they found piles of partially incinerated bodies a last-ditch attempt by the German soldiers to destroy the evidence of their atrocities. Shocked and stunned at what he saw, General Walton Walker ordered the mayor of Ordruf and his wife to walk through the camp. Later that day, the mayor and his wife returned home and committed suicide. And moving forward, as each new concentration camp or labor camp was discovered and liberated, it became standard practice to have nearby townspeople witness what their leaders and their armies had done. It seemed only just that they take some measure of responsibility 
for what had happened in their own backyards. Now, I tell you these stories because they illustrate very well both the positive and the negative, the concept of corporate responsibility. Here in the United States, we tend to be individualistic on most matters. The emphasis is on personal responsibility for success as well as for failure. I seriously doubt many of us would deny this fundamental aspect of our culture, and biblically speaking, this is an appropriate perspective to have. Scripture does point toward personal reward and responsibility. However, many of us are unfamiliar with and perhaps even unsettled by the notion of corporate responsibility, especially when it comes to guilt. However, the two stories I just told indicate that in spite of our individualistic leanings, there is an aspect of corporate responsibility that is intuitive to us. More importantly, Scripture also speaks to this idea. In Romans 5, one of the most theologically important chapters in the Bible, the Apostle Paul introduces us to the ideas of imputed guilt and imputed righteousness. He writes, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. In other words, before you and I actually committed our first sin, because of Adam's sin, we were already guilty. It's not just that we do sinful things, but we are sinful people. We're guilty because we're part of the human race. We're guilty because Adam's sin was imputed to us. Thankfully, though, we're declared not guilty in precisely the same manner through Jesus Christ. When we have a relationship with Him, His sacrificial death and resurrection secure our forgiveness. We are declared not guilty because His righteousness is imputed to us. We should rejoice there is a such thing as corporate responsibility and reward because without it, we would be responsible as individuals for securing our own salvation, something that we could never do. Now, what does all of this have to do with our current situation? Probably a lot more than you might think. 
One reason our culture has made so little progress regarding race relations is our inability or our unwillingness to understand racism is a systemic corporate sin all of us to varying degrees have participated in. Now, even as I say that, I know that some of you are thinking, look, Pastor Dan, I know I've got sins and issues in my life, but racism ain't one of them. I try to treat everybody the same. Well, maybe you do. But before you dismiss what I'm saying out of hand, hang with me for a moment. Why is it that so many of us reflexively exclude ourselves from participation in this sin? Culturally speaking, we deny any possibility of being racist because American culture teaches us to think almost exclusively in individualistic categories. We don't even consider the possibility of our part in a larger corporate sin. We've never thought about how the larger culture may be shaping our attitudes. The challenge before us is to stop thinking about racists and racism in only terms of specific individuals and behaviors and begin to think of it more along the lines of a hideous pattern that is woven into the otherwise beautiful tapestry of our culture. No single individual is responsible for the ugly pattern. But those of us who are white have either added a thread or two along the way, or we've done nothing to remove the pattern. Consider this. A group of men and women were kidnapped, chained, and brought to this country against their will. A country that proclaimed all men are created equal, unless you happen to be black. And for generations, it was the law of the land that if you were black, you could be bought sold and treated like so much cattle. From their labor, our country began to grow as an economic powerhouse. Now, of course, the Emancipation Proclamation and the Civil War were supposed to restore the notion that all men are created equal, but it didn't work out that way. Slavery was gone, but a new set of laws known as Jim Crow ensured that if you were black, you would be treated differently than whites. Racism replaced slavery as the law of the land. Access to resources and opportunities were intentionally withheld to keep blacks in their place and away from whites. Separate but equal kept black people in their own poor communities, their own subpar schools, and away from our restaurants, clubs, water fountains, and churches. Now, in 1964, the Civil Rights Act changed the law of the land, but it didn't change the hearts of men and women. The men and women who still held most of the power and most of the money. As a result, what the Civil Rights Act could not do was create a situation where the starting line was the same for everyone. Take a moment and look at this video. Hey, line up! Line up! Everybody line up! We're about to race! Everybody line up! Shoulder to shoulder, take off your backpacks. Basketball, line up, we're about to race. Hey, we are, we are racing for a $100 bill. The winner of this race will take this. $100 bill. Before I say go, I'm gonna make a couple statements. 
If those statements apply to you, I want you to take two steps forward. If those statements don't apply to you, I want you to stay right where you're at. Take two steps forward if both of your parents are still married. Take two steps forward if you grew up with a father figure in the home. Take two steps forward if you had access to a private education. Take two steps forward if you had access to a free tutor growing up. Take two steps forward if you've never had to worry about your cell phone being shut off. Take two steps forward if you've never had to help mom or dad with the bills. Take two steps forward if it wasn't because of your athletic ability, you don't have to pay for college. Take two steps forward if you never wondered where your next meal was going to come from. I want you guys up here in the front just to turn around and look. Every statement I've made has nothing to do with anything any of you have done. Has nothing to do with decisions you've made. Everything I have said has nothing to do with what you've done. We all know these people up here have a better opportunity to win this hundred dollars. Does that mean these people back here can't race? No. We would be foolish to not realize we've been given more opportunity. We don't want to recognize that we've been given a head start. But the reality is we have. Now, there's no excuse. They still got to run their race. You still got to run your race. But whoever wins this hundred dollars, I think it'd be extremely foolish of you not to utilize that and learn more about somebody else's story. Because the reality is, if this was a fair race and everybody was back on that line, I guarantee you some of these black dudes would smoke all of you. And it's only because you have this big of a head start that you're possibly going to win this race called life. That is a picture of life, ladies and gentlemen. Nothing you've done has put you in the lead that you're in right now. When I say go, on your mark, get set, go. If you didn't learn anything from this activity, you're a fool. Now, I'm fully aware the picture I've just painted is not the way everyone looks at our society. And maybe right now you're coming up with all sorts of arguments and statistics to the contrary. Hardship, poverty, broken families, economic and social disadvantages are a reality for everyone regardless of color. But we do a disservice to our brothers and sisters of color 
and continue to perpetuate the centuries-long sin of racism if we do not address the fact that for them, their disadvantages were for centuries by legal design as a direct result of their skin color. Even so, I, I don't doubt that what I've said is accurate because I've seen it with my own eyes. But there's another reason that goes far beyond my personal experience. The reason I can say with confidence the corporate sin of racism exists is really quite simple. Every single one of us are broken, sinful people. And the fundamental characteristic of sin is a preoccupation with self, pride. We all think that we are the most important, valuable person in the world. And the more someone else is like us in their ethnicity, skin color, social standing, the more likely we are to value them because, good for them, they're like us. Conversely, the more different someone is, the less likely we are to value that person. We're naturally suspicious of and even fearful of anyone who is different. I'm afraid that many of us are woefully naive when it comes to the strategies and the work of our enemy, the devil. One of his oldest and most effective strategies is to convince us that sin isn't really sin. Like no other sin I can think of, racial prejudice has the ability to lurk in the shadows, convincing us it isn't there, and then justifying itself when it rears its ugly head. One commentator I read said that prejudicial attitudes are usually one of the last strongholds in our lives to be sanctified, requiring every bit of grace we can get to finally be done with it. Jesus himself told us that Satan was a liar and the father of lies. In other words, he is the most masterful deceiver of all, and none of us are exempt from his subtleties or dark persuasions. The day we accept that racism is a pervasive sin that infects all of us is the day we will begin to make real advances in doing something about it. None of us are responsible for the world we were born into, but we are responsible for what we do with that world throughout the course of our lives. As followers of Jesus, we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I believe Jesus has every expectation that once we've prayed, we'll go to work on his behalf, repenting of our corporate sin and doing our part to make that prayer a reality. We're at a pivotal time in the life of our country and our church, and an opportunity is before us to make a stand for what is right, what is just, and what represents the heart of Jesus. It won't be popular, and it won't be easy. But that's not the life Jesus promised or called us to live. The real question is, how will you respond? Won't you join me in prayer? Father, we readily confess to you that far too often we've turned a blind eye to the pain and suffering of others. And so we join our hearts together now, asking you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, open our eyes, Lord, to the truth of the matter. Convict us, lead and guide us in the way we should go, that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. 
that is our earnest prayer, and we offer it in Jesus' name, amen.